Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, another good morning to each of you. I'm Ryan, another one of the pastors on staff, and we're going to be continuing this uh, morning in our look at the Gospel of John. We've been saying each week that John wrote his Gospel so that we might know Jesus, that we might have life in him, and that as Patrick has already prayed this morning, that that life would not begin upon our death, but that we would experience life to the full in life, this side of resurrection. And that's what's on offer for us today. Today, our text, John 8.52 to 8.11, is very unique. Uh, If you go to your Bibles instead of your worship bulletin, you'll find some comment like this in your text. The earliest manuscripts do not include the following verses, these, this section of Scripture. And I want to address what that means this morning, and in light of that, how we're going to proceed in our time together. This portion of Scripture, it was almost certainly not part of John's original inspired manuscript when he wrote this letter. Most of the scholars that I have consulted with this week, and there's been a lot of them, a lot of hours spent on it, Note that this section was almost undoubtedly historical, meaning it happened in real time and space and history, but it's not part of John's earliest manuscripts. And so therefore, this morning, I'd like to do something unique. I'd like to do what we were taught not to do in the very first days of my preaching classes in seminary. And that was, you don't make your points from the text in front of you from somewhere else in the Bible. But today, that's exactly what I'm going to do to show you how the features of this text demonstrate demonstrate parts of other bits of the Bible and how true they, in fact, are. A quick example we'll see in this text, Jesus' heart for the sexually sinful woman, something that we see over and over again in the New Testament. John chapter 4, our very letter, something from Luke chapter 7. So this text this morning will act as a pointer to other texts, and I will reference those throughout. One last thing, the Bible that you have in your hands, brothers and sisters, is thoroughly and entirely trustworthy. My aim today is not to undermine the confidence that you have in God's Word. Rather, by treating this text today appropriately, you'll find more and more confidence in the Scriptures that you do have. So let me read what is printed, and I'll ask that you follow along, and then I'll pray for us. Before I do, I want to give our young listeners one thing to keep their ears open for, and that is, what is this text urging us to do when we are caught in trouble? So if you'll listen along, I'll read from John seven fifty three. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what did you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against them. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger 
on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would be our teacher by your spirit and that you would soften our hearts today to see the ministry of Jesus for each of us. We know that you are with us now by your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, that you would take delight in opening up our hearts and our eyes to see Jesus. Please, please come and do that now, we pray. We're waiting on you. In Christ's name, amen. Many in the volunteer state will be familiar with the letters O-R-N-L, the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, just west of Knoxville. The lab was the prominent historical home for the Manhattan Project in the U.S. during World War II. You might find it a bit ironic then to learn that just three years ago in that small town resided a 94-year-old man named Friedrich Berger. He had lived there for some 30-plus years until he was ordered by a federal judge to leave the U.S. for being a German officer at the Neuengamme concentration camp. For all these years, Berger had been in hiding. One official from the Tennessee Holocaust Commission noted every time that someone or somebody is brought to justice even from 50 years ago or longer, that is a message to the world. Even if it's something you did years ago, it will catch up with you. Now, I just wonder for those 50 some odd years, I wonder what it was like for Mr. Berger, always looking over his shoulder, wondering what day you'd be caught. But I also wonder, too, if he carried the longing to be set free from it all. I share that story with you this morning in many ways to draw a line to what I think is one of the big questions that this text itself raises. What do we do when the hiding becomes exposure? You've likely known this in your life just as I have, and at the risk of being trite, all of us know what hidden guilt and what hidden shame feels like. And we know how we don't want to face it. If you've ever been there or are there presently, then this story from John 8 is given to you as a mercy this morning. Because this surprising text, we're shown how Jesus responds to those who were caught and invites the question, what if there was a way where your guilt and your sin didn't catch up to you? What if there was a way? Wouldn't you want to know about it? 
Well, so I want you to lean in. I want, you to, I want to proceed from this text this morning to show you what the Bible and other parts clearly teaches about being caught. And I want to do so by looking at two main ways that Jesus responds in this text. Now, these points are not original to me. They've been said a thousand different ways by a thousand different people, but here they are in short form. I want you to see, first of all, how Jesus exposes the comfortable. And then secondly, we're going to look at this morning, how he comforts the exposed. So let's begin by how we see Jesus exposing the comfortable. I'm looking at verses 52, or 53 rather, to verse 7 of chapter 8. Look at verse 3 there. We're told that the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the men present there, that they have come toward the temple courts in verse 2, where Jesus is publicly teaching amongst the crowds there in the temple courts. And they put a woman who they have caught in adultery into the midst of that teaching enterprise. What are they doing? Well, this text is quite subtle and layered, so I want to spend some time here for just a moment. But verse 6 tells us that this expose is really a test. It's a trap. And it's a trap for Jesus that they might be able to bring him up on charges to the authorities. It's a setup. And do you know what? This is a common move. This is a common ruse by the Pharisees over and over again. You can write these down. Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20. It's a standard play out of their playbook. And here's how it worked. They are trying to pit his compassion and his honoring of the law against one another. Remember, Jesus himself has told us his very high view of the law from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And yet at the same time, Jesus' own statement about why he has come from Matthew chapter 9, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so these scribes and Pharisees use this woman as a pawn, as a pawn in their scheme to trap Jesus. And Jesus bends down and he wrote with his finger in the ground as a response. Now, do you know what Jesus wrote in the ground? Pastor Patrick said, War Eagle. I don't know if that's true. I'm just kidding. No one knows what he wrote, no one has any idea. But I do wonder if why he wrote was to take the gaze of everyone in the crowd that day off that woman for just a few short minutes, to turn their eyes away from her onto something else. And so Jesus stands and he brilliantly responds, let him who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Notice Jesus isn't saying that she is innocent. This is not a tale, this is not a story about innocence. He is in fact saying that she isn't. More on that in a moment. But for now, Jesus sees through the trap. He knows what they know, and he knows the impartiality with which they are applying the law. How so? In three ways. First, nowhere in the law are compassion and honor for the law or compassion and the naming of sin ever set in opposition. That's not the way the law functions. In fact, a reading of the law, a true reading of the law, keeps them beautifully wedded together. Mercy and truth are married even in the law. 
Second, notice he doesn't say, don't stone her. He says, go ahead on this condition. You have no sin. Now, this is interesting. Commentator, theologian uh, Don Carson notes this, and I read directly from his comments on this verse. He says, this is a direct reference from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 9. The witness of the crime must be the first to throw the stones, and they must not be participants in the crime itself. Jesus is saying does not mean one must be free even from lust before one can legitimately condemn adultery. Listen now. It means rather they must not be guilty of this particular sin. This gets at the heart of Jesus' sermon on the mount where he says, judge not that you may not be judged. And thirdly, I just want to mention there's something deeply fishy about this whole charade. Jesus knew the law. Both Exodus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22, they both call for the death penalty for adultery. Let me read you the former. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The latter's thrust, Deuteronomy 22, is exactly the same. Someone is conspicuously absent from this scene. The man. And for their eyewitness testimony to count, it meant that they had to catch her, like the text says, in the act. And I want you to read that as literally as possible. And then you'll hear the snare snap. Jesus knows what they're doing. They're trying to trap him. But he has just exposed their little game and put them in a bind. Yes, you caught this woman in the act. By the law, she deserves death. But by that same law, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 16, you are not to be impartial in your judgment. And since there's no man here with you, you have no case. All of this is in the background when Jesus responds, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Jesus is not saying she is innocent. He is saying you men are not impartial witnesses because of your own heart. QED, checkmate. Now, what can we say about this in response? Several things, I think, this morning. But the text gets us to see that Jesus, while not excusing her sin, does expose the hypocrisy of this worshiping community, especially where they see their non-sexual sin as less of a problem than her sexual sin. There is no higher ground here. The cross levels it all. And I love what C.S. Lewis stingingly notes where he writes in Mere Christianity, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to the church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither, he adds. Jesus elsewhere himself in the gospel says to the religious types bent on looking down on others with less respectable sins, says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. There is no true comfort to be had in self-righteous hypocrisy. 
And so Jesus aims to expose it. The danger, its danger is 100% of the time, it blinds you to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, the church needs to hear this today. Because we have become so focused on sexual sin as the most concerning of all sins. Question for us. What deserves more attention from the church? The sexual sins of the outside world or the self-righteous pride within the worshiping community? You might say, false dichotomy, Ryan. They're both worthy of our attention. And I'm going to respond, of course they're both worthy of our attention. I'm not denying that. But Jesus is saying, church, get your house in order first. Or if you like, get the log out of your own eye before you go speck hunting in the eyes of the world. And do we long for a sex ethic, a biblical sex ethic to prevail outside of the church? I think all of us could say, yes, we long for that. And one day it will be so. But the question for the church is, do we want a biblical sex ethic to prevail inside of the church first? Until then, we drop the stones and we show the world something that we share with it, our need for mercy. That is what unites us. And that is what defines us as a people. So come on in, world. We're a mess, just like you. We exist to show you the one who loves to make a bride out of a harlot. If we refuse to name our own sin in all of its varieties, may the Lord Jesus name it for us at great cost to our egos, for our own sakes, and for the good of the world. You see, Jesus here allows no quarter for religious hypocrisy. And so he exposes the comfortability of the religious elite, of the elite in power, of those who have the upper hand. And he says, I smell you out. Throw the first stone if you're without sin. Secondly, Jesus not only exposes the comfortable, I want to show you secondly how he comforts or him comforting the exposed. After Jesus' one-sentence sermon in verse 7, we're told that he returns to riding on the ground. And then he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then her only words of the whole episode, no one, sir, no one, Lord, no one. St. Augustine famously says of this scene where the two are left, he says, two are left, misery and misery heart. To be misery hearted is to give your heart to the misery of others. And that is what the woman finds here in Jesus. Jesus says two things to her. First, he says, neither do I condemn you. The only one without sin in the whole temple courts that day the only one qualified to reach back and hurl the first stone doesn't condemn. There is real guilt and there is real culpability here. And Jesus doesn't regard it. Neither do I condemn you. But second, he says, go and sin no more. He looks at her and he demands, he demands change. He says in so, in so many words, this is sin and you must change. Look, when I forgive sin, 
I demand a change in life and a change in heart. And it's, I heard one pastor put it this way. It's like he's saying to each of us, Ryan, your sin, it's not between us anymore. I've dealt with that. But I want to make you into a different man. I want to change you. I want to make you more like my son. And that is what Jesus is getting at here when he says, go and sin no more. Brothers and sisters, I just want to say this. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. The order of these two statements is everything. I don't condemn you. I do not condemn you. And go and sin no more. And if you flip them, you lose Christianity. And you gain misery in your life. And you will gain frustration in your walk with God. There will be no power for change, and there will be no growth if you flip the order. It must always go like this. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This is told in spades in Richard Lovelace's book, The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, where he says that our acceptance, our no condemnation, is the basis and the fuel for our life with God. In other words, some $10 theological words this morning, our justification, that is our right standing with God, is the theological basis for our progressive sanctification, that is our ongoing change and conformity unto Christ throughout our lives. Actually, they go, to, they go together as a dual grace. We won't start on that now. My point is, is this, we obey because we've been accepted. Not we accept because we obey. Does that make sense? My point is very simple. You flip those, you'll make a terror of your life because you'll always wonder if Jesus loves you. Why? Because you can't clean up your act. And so if God's love for you is conditioned on how well you're doing spiritually or religiously, guess what? You're dead meat. You don't get out of the starting blocks. But the gospel is I don't condemn you. Now live out of that. That business has been settled. We're good. Now you live a changed life. You see, listen to me. That is the way that fruit is born in the Christian's life. Back to the narrative, the woman has been exposed and Jesus meets her and he doesn't berate her. He doesn't send her away. He holds delicately and he te the tension there and he names her sin and he forgives her. And let me tell you this, he will do that for you. Let me get very... Let me press in a little bit for us as a church. For those of us in this room that are trapped in the throes of sexual sin, may I have your hearts for just a second. There is freedom on offer for you this morning. I'm talking to both men and women this morning. There is mercy for sexual sin in Jesus not everywhere, but in most quarters of the church, we've done a poor job of relaying the message that Jesus forgives sexual sin. Sadly, we have promoted another gospel of justification by sexual purity, and that is anathema. The church needs to shout from the rafters that the sexually sinful and broken are welcome with Jesus and that they are welcomed in the church. God's design for our sexuality is one man, one woman in the context of marriage. Any deviations from that, as crazy as it sounds for me to say this in Nashville in the 21st century, represents a violation of his very heart 
and his law. And, and, it is exactly those same sorts, us, that are the object of, neither do I condemn you if we will come to him. As one friend with such a story has said, there is one way out. You have to go to God. And that likely will be very hard, but in that hardness you will find a thousand mercies. You don't have to die hidden. And as another friend of mine pointed out, shared this great story with me, Lefty Frizzell, a singer originally cut a song called The Long Black Veil, also cut by Johnny Cash as well. In it, a man has an alibi for a murder that he is wrongly accused of. For those of you familiar with the song, you know what the alibi is, an extramarital affair. And rather than name that and come clean, he takes that to the grave with him. The lyric is as follows. The judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life, for I had been in the arms of my best friend's wife. It meant my life. Don't make it your life. Don't make it your life. It doesn't have to mean your life. Jesus is offering you a better alibi this morning, and you can be free. In this sense, your sin doesn't have to catch up with you. Why? What is that alibi? The reason Jesus can say to all of us who have been caught and exposed, neither do I condemn you, is because he was condemned for us. Romans 8, chapter 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus was condemned for us. He was very literally dying naked, exposed for us, so that we might hear him say, neither do I condemn you. And when you see, when you see Jesus doing that, it changes you. It gives you power for life with him. You may not know this story now, but we, your church family, promise to tell it to you until you make it your own. And that alibi puts you somewhere else. It puts you in him. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's the counter evidence for a sin-weary, condemnation-fearing heart. And so the devil, the world, and your own flesh may seek to arraign you with a thousand different charges. And you'll be able to say to every one of them, guess what? Yes, guilty as charged. In fact, you missed some. But because I'm in Jesus, there's my alibi. The penalty has been paid. Take it up with him. Have you learned to say that? Don't you want to be free like that? No matter what you're caught in, Jesus died to set you and me free. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus into the world to set us free. And that if we have been set free, we are free indeed. Thank you, O oh Lord, for loving us like this. Would you draw many who are hiding and who are afraid into the comforts of your love this very day? Do that, we pray, Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen.
Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantpres.com.